You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Once again, welcome. Glad that you're here this morning. If you would please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, letter of 1 Peter. It's towards the back of your Bible, right after the book of James. So you can use your index that it tells you your table of contents. Or if you're using your Bible app, just uh, and you got it easy, you just look for 1 Peter and you can go right there. And I'll read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these uh, glorious truths. And Lord, this morning we pray that uh, we would know this kind of joy that Peter talks about here, this rejoicing in the midst of whatever's going on in our lives, this rejoicing even in the midst of difficulty and trials and hardships. Lord, would you help us to have this kind of joy, this inexpressible joy in loving you and knowing you. Lord, we don't want to just read about it. We want to know it and experience it ourselves. So Lord, we pray that you would uh, activate that in our lives this morning and that we would experience that as we study your word and as we grow. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hope you guys all had a great Christmas. Um, Next week, we are going to be starting a new series called Remember the Prophets. And that is going to be uh, something I'm really looking forward to for the first couple weeks of the new year. We're going to be doing this series, Remember the Prophets. So James chapter 5, verse 10 says this. My friends, remember the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Take them as examples of patient endurance under suffering. So James recommends that we remember the prophets. And so over the next couple weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at some of the Old Testament prophets, considering their lives, considering their messages and what they spoke about and preached about. And we're going to be talking about how they are examples for us and what we can learn from them. So I'm really looking forward to that. Don't miss that. That'll start next Sunday. But for today, we are finishing our series that we did for the month of December and for Christmas. And it's called Joy to the World. And here in the month of December, what we've been doing is focusing on how the gospel brings us a joy into our lives that is something that nothing and no one can ever take away from us. It's an insuppressible joy that bubbles up. And so that's what we've been talking about this month. And today we're going to conclude that series by looking at, well, first, first Peter right here, but we're going to be looking at two New Testament writers who wrote to the same group of people, and we're going to see what they had to say about this unique Christian joy and, and what it meant for Christians then and what it means for us today. The title of today's message is, Count it all joy. And here's what we're going to see in the text. Here's a little outline for you. First of all, we're going to talk about the source of our joy as Christians. And secondly, we're going to talk about how to activate that joy in your life. So the source of our joy and how to activate that joy in our lives. So first of all, let's talk about the source of our joy. 
So the other day, uh, we had some friends over, and they were showing me this YouTube clip of this comedian. And this comedian was talking about how, you know, here in our culture in America, we tend to use a lot of hyperbole, right? Like we exaggerate a little bit. Like we tend to say that things are awesome or amazing when really they're, they're good, but maybe we should, you know, reserve that word awesome or amazing for things that are actually awesome and amazing, not just everything. And we do it the other way too. We say that things are awful or they're just the worst. And so he was talking about this example of how he, he drove his daughter to the mall Right? And so they get to the mall, they're in the car, they're going to drop her off so she can shop and hang out with her friends. And so they, he get to the mall, and the daughter texts her friends, and she finds out they're late. And she's like, oh, my friends are late. And so his wife, the comedian's wife, and by the way, it's got to be awful, like being married to a comedian, right? Like, I, I feel bad for anybody who's married to a comedian. And so the comedian turns around, because his wife turns to the daughter and says, oh, your friends are late? That's just the worst and right, the comedian guy's like, the worst, huh? Is that really the worst? And he says, well, uh, hey, remember those miners who were in that mine in, in Chile for like 30 days? There was like 40 of them down, locked in this mine, like three miles below the earth in this little room. And they were like wondering if they're going to run out of oxygen and die and they're never going to see their families again. Like, I bet they were down there. And what if they were like, man, you know, this is really bad. But you know what is the worst? would be like when you go to the mall and you're supposed to meet your friends there and then they're late and you have to wait for them. I mean, this is bad, but that's the worst, right? And so what, what was he doing? What's his point here? His point is that what we all need sometimes is a little bit of perspective, don't we? Right, that's what we need is a little bit of perspective. And, and you know, perspective is that thing where you can step back from a situation, you can see it clearly, and you can see other things in relation to that situation, and it puts it in a whole new light. And then you begin to think differently, and as a result of thinking differently, you begin to feel differently when you get some perspective. So perspective is very helpful. You know, like I have a, a two-year-old just turned three, so she's now three, and you know, what she lacks a lot of time is perspective, right? Like five minutes isn't really that long unless you're three and you have no perspective at all and then it feels like forever. But you know what? It's not just toddlers who lack perspective. Sometimes all of us do, right? Like have you ever seen uh, a parent at a little league game or at a kid's soccer game just screaming at somebody else, right? And you're like, hey, you might be 40 years old, but you need some perspective, right? Just remember, this is a game. These are kids. We all need to get perspective. Perspective is really important. It helps us step back from a situation and see it in a different way. See it the whole picture. See other information, other factors that usually change the way we think and how we feel about what's going on. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, this letter was written by Peter to a group of people who needed some perspective on their situation and what they were going through. Here's what he says in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Whereas many of the letters in the New Testament are written to particular churches in certain towns and regions, this letter is different. It's one of the few letters in the Bible. It's written to a broader audience. This is written to a group of people who are spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And he calls them this phrase. He says they are elect exiles. That tells us two things about them. Number one, that they are Christians. And number two, that they are what we would call in our day and age, refugees. They're refugees. They're Christian refugees. See what happened, and you can read about it in the book of Acts, but what happened is that after Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension, 
What happened is that Christianity grew very quickly in Jerusalem. Thousands of people increasingly becoming Christians very fast, becoming believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus. It was a wonderful time. It was an exciting time. But it also didn't last very long. Because what happened is that the Jewish religious leaders, they were the ones who stood to lose the most from Christianity growing. They lost influence. They lost power. And so they began to heavily persecute Christianity. They used their influence and their power to persecute the early Christians. And as a result, many of those early Christians ended up fleeing Jerusalem. We read about this in the book of Acts. They fled Jerusalem. And God used that to have them then take the gospel to new parts of the world. But they fled Jerusalem basically as refugees. They went into other parts of the Roman Empire where they would be outside the the reach of the Jewish establishment and Jewish religious authorities. And they would have more religious freedom. Now, now you might say, well, hey, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, one time I moved from Kansas City to Denver, and, you know, I've moved across the country. Well, understand, it wasn't like that for them at that time, like it would be for us to move around or move even uh, internationally like it is for us today. Because what you have to understand about these ancient societies is they were not mobile societies. People would live in one town or one village for generation upon generation. And it's not like you went to school and got a degree and learned a trade. What you would do is, whatever your family was, that's what you were. And, and so it was, you were very much dependent on your family, very much dependent on your community. They didn't have bank accounts. So literally, if you wanted to move, you could only take what you could carry on your person or maybe on a donkey. And that's what you have to move. And so for these people... They're, they're so dependent on their community, so dependent on their family. And for these other early Christians, what this meant was that they lost their community. They lost their families. They lost their money and possessions. They lost their homes. They lost everything as a result of becoming Christians. And if that wasn't bad enough, these people who fled Jerusalem trying to escape persecution, then guess what happened? Well, then pretty soon it wasn't just the Jewish authorities who were persecuting Christians, but the Roman authorities began persecuting Christians too. At this time when Peter's writing, there's a guy in charge named Caesar Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. He's famous for taking the dead bodies of Christians, killing Christians and taking their dead bodies and lighting them on fire in his yard. Okay, so the Christians began to be persecuted, not only in Jerusalem, but now the ones who fled the persecution, now they're also being persecuted in the new places they've gone where they thought they would be safe. These people were facing real difficulty and incredible hardship. And the big question that these people had is a question that many of us have, is that, hey, if Christianity, you're you're talking about this great joy that we can have, how can I have joy when everything in my life that gives me joy has been taken away from me? How can I have joy when everything in my life is falling apart? And here in the first nine verses of chapter one, Peter tells us this. And what he does is he gives us some perspective on how we as Christians can have unspeakable joy even in the midst of incredible difficulty. As Christians, he gives us perspective how we can have unspeakable joy even in the midst of incredible difficulty. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, you have been grieved by various hardships. But then he says in verse 8, he says, and yet you rejoice with inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. And so the question for us today is this. How can it be, what is this Christian joy, that somehow you're able to have inexpressible joy even in the midst of incredible hardship? The reason 
is what Peter tells us. He says the reason you can have inexpressible joy, even in the midst of incredible hardship, is this, because of the unique source of Christian joy, the source of Christian joy that is unique. That's what makes Christian joy unique, is that it comes from a unique source. He tells us what that source is, starting in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the source of our joy as Christians is this living hope that we have because of Jesus. Because Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Because he rose from the dead to make a way for you to be saved. You can have this living hope, which means it's an undying hope. It's a hope that nothing and no one can take away from you. Nothing can kill it. It is a living hope. Peter describes this hope in verse 4. He says, it is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. And what that means is it's secure. There is nothing on, in heaven or on earth that can destroy this hope. There's nothing that can take it away from you. It's absolutely secure. It is a living, undying hope. There was a man named Viktor Frankl. Maybe you've heard of him. He wrote a very famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. So Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor who lived uh, in Europe during World War II. And like most of the Jews in that area, he was rounded up and he was put into a concentration camp. And he was one of the ones who survived the concentration camps. So he went through the camps, he came out of them, and he ended up writing about it, several books actually, after he got out of the camp, talking about the horrors of the concentration camps and also what he learned as a doctor and as a psychologist in the camps. And again, his most famous book is called Man's Search for Meaning. And in these books, Viktor Frankl, what he does, he talks about how most people in the world look for meaning and value and purpose in life in a few things. And here's what they are. Most people in the world look for meaning, purpose, and value in life in these things. Health, family, professional success, or position in society. Health, family, professional success, and position in society. In other words, that other people look up to you and respect you. But he said, here's the thing. When we were in that concentration camp, all of those things were taken away from us. We lost our health. We lost our jobs. We lost our families. And we lost respect in the, in the community's eyes. We lost everything that everybody else in the world looks to and says, if I had that, that's what gives my life meaning and value and purpose. And he asks the question, if you were to lose all of these things like we did, let me ask you the question, what reason would you have for living? Is there a reason for living which is bigger than family, success, uh, you know, health, and, and respect in other people's eyes? That's the question he asked. It's a really good question. And maybe you say, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm ever going to end up in a concentration camp, right? Yeah, but think about this. Do you realize that that is exactly what suffering is. Suffering is the stripping away of the things which you believe give your life meaning and value and purpose. That's exactly what suffering is. It's the taking away of what? Of your health, of your family, of your finances, of your security, of your position in society. Think, think about it like this. 
If I were to ask you to describe yourself, how would you describe yourself? Now, I'm not asking how you look, how much you weigh, what your hair color is. I'm asking you to describe who you are at the end of the day. In other words, what is, your, what is it that makes you you? And so think about that, and what would you say? Maybe you'd say, well, I'm a child because I have parents, or I'm a mom, or I'm a dad, or I'm a husband, or a wife, or I'm an athlete, or I'm a musician, or I'm an American, or I'm an engineer, or I'm a carpenter, or I'm a cyclist. See, whatever answer you give, those are the things which you believe give you value. Those are the things which you believe give you your identity, that that give you meaning in life and purpose in life. And the question is, what would you do? What if all of those things were taken away from you? Then what would you be left with and who would you be if you lost all of those things? Because the thing is that that does happen to people. And that's what Viktor Frankl was talking about. He said that is exactly what happened to us in the concentration camp. And that's a really important question because essentially that's what happens when you suffer. The things which you believe gave your life meaning and value and purpose are stripped away from you. And so the big question is this. uh, The big point is this. What we need in order to make it in life is we need a hope that suffering cannot take away from us. We need a hope that not even death can take away from us. We need something that is so big, so solid, so fixed that no amount of suffering and not even death can take it away from us. If we have that, then we will be able to make it through no matter what life throws our way. But if you don't have that, you will be crippled and you will sink under the weight of pressure and suffering and pain. Because let me tell you this, if you live long enough, Eventually, if you live long enough, all of those things will be taken away from you, right? It's just a matter of time. That's how it is. We are all dying, and eventually all of those things will be taken away from us if we live long enough. Health, family, finances, success, respect in our community. So what we need, we need something to live for, and we need something to hope in. Something to live for and something to hope in that is bigger than this life that is bigger, that not no amount of suffering, not even death, can ever take away from us or destroy. And that, my friends, is called a living hope. That's what you need, is a living hope. And here's the good news. Peter tells us in verse 3, is that Jesus has given us, in Jesus we have a living hope. That is the source of our joy. That is the source of our joy, this living hope. So this joy we're talking about, this uniquely Christian joy, it's unique and it's different from the joy that anybody uh, anywhere else in the world experiences because here's why. It has a different source. That's what we're talking about, the source of our joy. The source of our joy makes our joy different and unique than the joy that anyone else in the world experiences. It comes from this living hope, this undying hope that we have because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us in his death and resurrection. Where unlike the treasures of this earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. This is a treasure which is kept in heaven secure for us where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. You could put it this way. And here's what we see in 1 Peter. Christian joy is based on our salvation, not on our circumstances. Christian joy is based on our salvation, not on our circumstances. Look at what it says in verse 5. It says this, we who by God's power are being guarded through faith For what? For a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Christian joy is based on our salvation, not on our circumstances. 
Look again in verse 6. This is interesting. He says, in this you rejoice. In what? What do we rejoice in? In this salvation, what he said in verse 5. In this salvation, you rejoice. And notice, this is present tense. He doesn't say, you will rejoice someday when you get to heaven, then you'll rejoice. No, he says, now you rejoice in the present, in this salvation that you have. And look at what it says next. In this you rejoice, even though now you are suffering grief, and various trials. So even though now you are suffering grief and various trials, you rejoice. Now, do you get that? It's a present tense. He's saying you rejoice, present tense, and you suffer, present tense. The two are happening at the same time. And that's surprising because what I might expect him to say would be something like this. Like you're suffering grief now, but someday your grief is going to be over. And when your grief is over, then you will rejoice. See, if he would have said that, I'd still be like, yeah, that's still really good news, right? And if he was like, so just hang in there because one day all your suffering and grief will be over and then you will rejoice. Even if he said that, I'd be on board. I'd be like, yes, because isn't that part of the hope that we have in Jesus? Isn't that true? That in Jesus, our hope is that one day all suffering and grief will cease forever. Absolutely, that is the hope that we, we celebrate. But here's something even more profound than that. And this is what I want you to see. This is something so incredible, so profound. This is what makes Christian joy absolutely unique and different in our world. And that's this. He's not saying, one day when suffering ends, then you will rejoice. No, what he's saying is, even though you're suffering now, you suffer now and you rejoice now in the present. It's not something in the future, it's right now. You, suffer, you rejoice now and you are experiencing real sorrow also now. Now, for many of us, that, that doesn't even fit on our grid, right? Like, we have no grid for that. We, it doesn't fit on our map. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. Because the way that I naturally tend to think is this. How can I have joy if all the things that give me joy are taken away from me? My health, my family, my career, what other people think about me. If all those things are taken away, then how could I have joy? Because those things are the source of my joy. You see, for many of us, we find our joy in our circumstances. We find our joy in our circumstances, don't we? Like if things are going well, if I'm healthy, if everyone in our family is doing well, if, if things are going good at work, uh, if other people like me, then I have joy. And for many of us, our greatest hope if you were to boil it down, what is the thing that you hope for most? It's, it's just a circumstance. That's what it is. Our greatest hopes are oftentimes that our circumstances would be good. That's all we hope in. And because of that, you end up with a sense of joy that comes and goes. Right? It comes when I'm feeling good, when my circumstances are good, and it goes when my circumstances are bad. As my circumstances change, so my sense of joy changes. But Christian joy is different because it has a different source. It's based in something that is fixed, something that is unchanging, something that is stable. It's based in what Jesus Christ did for you at a point in the past, at a historical moment when he said, it is finished. See, it's fixed. It's done. No matter what happens around you, no matter what you do, that point doesn't move. It doesn't fluctuate. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he, he wrote this letter which is called the Epistle of Joy. 
Now, it's really interesting when you consider the circumstances Paul was in when he wrote that letter. He talks about joy and rejoicing in God more in that letter than in anything else he ever wrote. And yet, where did he write it from? He wrote it while he was under arrest, being held unjustly for a crime that he didn't commit. For years, he was held unjustly for a crime he didn't commit. When he wrote the letter, he was currently you know, chained to somebody under house arrest. This is a time, there was a time in Paul's life where he had been wealthy, where he had status and people respected him, where he had a successful career. And by becoming a Christian, he had lost all of it. He had lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his money. He lost everything. And here he was chained under house arrest for a crime he didn't commit. And he was bubbling up with joy. This insuppressible joy just kept bubbling up as he talked and as he wrote. And you wonder, how could that be? Well, he writes there in, in Philippians. He says this in Philippians chapter 4. I have learned, whatever situation I'm in, I have learned to be content. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. And here's what he said. I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sometimes you hear people quote that verse as a kind of like positive affirmation. Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So now I'm going to go, you know, run this race or, you know, this like uh, marathon. I'm going to do really great. Well, I think that does apply to a degree. But understand that when Paul said that, he wasn't talking about positive affirmation. What he's saying is, I can, I can suffer these things and not lose my joy because Jesus Christ gives me the strength to do that. See, Paul could have joy in the midst of bad circumstances because his joy wasn't based on his circumstances, right? Bad circumstances didn't take away his joy because the source of his joy was something that was fixed, something that couldn't change, something that was settled already in time past. And what this means is that if you are a Christian, then there is a sense in which you, you have been saved, right? It's something that God has done for you. It's done. It's finished. But there's another sense in which you are being saved, right? Your salvation is an ongoing thing. And there's another sense in which you will be saved, right? Like your salvation is something which will come to full fruition at a time in the future, this is a comprehensive salvation. And so as Christians, we remember this, that our joy is not based in our circumstances. Our joy is based in our salvation. But that salvation isn't just something in the future. It's not just something in the past. It's also something that is ongoing. Jesus said in uh, John chapter 17, he said that the essence of eternal life is knowing him. Knowing him is the essence of eternal life. And friends, that's something that, doesn't, that isn't in the future. That is something that we can experience here and now. That is an aspect of our salvation that we experience even now. And so as Christians, we have this unique perspective on joy because of the unique source of our joy. Our joy is based in our salvation, not in our circumstances. But there's another way in which, which joy as Christians is unique and different. Our, our perspective on joy is unique and different. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things I always kind of wondered about 
And uh, it, it was this, that if you read this verse, it almost seems like it's saying that God tests your faith to see if it's genuine or not. And, you know, kind of like uh, when you go to the store, if you use a $100 bill, sometimes they'll take out that iodine pen and they'll test it. And if it's a real $100 bill, you know, the iodine reacts with the cloth in the paper and the, the bill is not destroyed. It puts an orange mark on it that disappears after time. But if it's fake, then it puts a blue mark on it and it ruins it. And so, you know, I always thought about this. Well, so he's saying that he tests the genuineness of our faith. But I wonder, you know, doesn't God already kind of know if my faith is genuine or not? Like, it's not like he's going to learn some new information through me going through this trial that he didn't know before. And some people would say, well, it's not so that God can learn if your faith is genuine. He already knows that. Rather, it's so that you can learn if your faith is genuine. And I always kind of feel like, man, it still seems a little bit unnecessary, right? Like to prove to me that my faith is genuine. That's why he put me through this thing. But, but this verse helps me understand this a little bit better, what this testing is and what the purpose of it is and what God's purpose can be sometimes in allowing trials and temptations into my life. Because look at the metaphor he uses here. He says it's like gold that's put into a fire. It's like gold that's put into a fire. Now, now what the, what he says that's what it's like when your faith is put to the test through fiery trials that you go through. You know what happens when you put metal, and, and gold especially, into a fire, is that the fire, you know what it does? It improves it. You know that? The fire improves it. It makes it better. It makes it brighter. It makes it purer. It brings the dirt and the scum and the dross to the surface, and it burns that stuff up. And the end result will be that what is true, what is pure, what is good, that remains. Everything else is stripped away. And what you're left with is something better, something brighter, something pure, brighter, pure, more valuable gold in the end. And he says that is a picture of what hardship and difficulties and trials can do in our lives. Now, is it always that way? Is that always what happens when you go through something difficult? Does it always make you better? Well, no, and, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But that's what can happen, and that's what ought to happen ideally. But here's what I want you to see before we move on to talk about that more, is this. The sorrow and the grief and the hardship that we experience in life as Christians, here's the effect that it can have. It can actually increase our joy. Did you know that? That this is the unique perspective that we have on life and joy and hardship and difficulty is that our hardships and difficulties as Christians can actually increase our joy. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, well think about it like this. It's like fire. It refines us. It strips away the other things that we, that we cling to, that we hope in other than Jesus. And what it causes us to do is turn to and cling to and dig deeper into the source of our joy, which is him. You see, at, at the same time, whenever sorrow comes into our lives, what does it do? It drives us back to Jesus even more. And so therefore, the source of our joy, it doesn't take away our joy. Rather, it drives us even more into the source of our joy, which is Jesus. And in that way, suffering and trials can actually increase our joy as Christians. So for a Christian person, when sorrow comes into your life, it doesn't steal your joy because your joy isn't based on your circumstances. Rather, it drives you deeper into the source of your joy, which is Jesus and the goodness of your salvation and the hope that you have in him. 
So as Christians, we have a unique perspective on joy, but we also have a unique perspective on hardship and suffering. Look again at what he says in verse 7. He says, hardship pushes you into our joy, but there's another thing it does. It refines us. In other words, it can make us better, like when you put gold into a fire. In other words, hardships don't destroy our joy, but they can have the effect of making us better, more brilliant people wiser, more compassionate, more courageous. It can even increase our faith. Now look back at what he says in verse 2. Peter says something interesting. He says, you guys are elect and you are exiles and you are both of these things. Check out what he says. According to the foreknowledge of God. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's what he's telling him. He's saying these things that are happening to you, you need to know this. They are not happening outside of God's sovereignty. They are not happening outside of God's sovereignty. And God intends to use even these difficulties for good and for a glorious purpose. And the question for us is this. How will you respond in the midst of these difficulties? How will you respond in the midst of the things you're going through? Will you become bitter? Or will you allow God to do his full work through those things? Will you submit to him in the process and it will make you better? So will you become better or will you become bitter? That's a choice that you have to make. Come with me real quick to another New Testament letter. It's the one just to the left, right? Just one book before this letter. It's the letter of James. And by the way, we're going to be studying James in the new year. We have our teaching schedule planned out for uh, several months in the new year. We're going to be looking at the prophets, and then we're going to study James. But here's a quick preview. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Here's what James says, and here's what's interesting. James is writing to the same group of people. Notice he says that in verse 1. He talks about James to the diaspora, right? The, those who are spread abroad, those Christians who have gone out and who are suffering. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of different kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice what James says. He says, count it all joy when you meet various trials. That's such a radical statement, right? Like that you read it and you're like, well, he can't mean really like count it all joy when bad stuff happens to me, right? Like sometimes you even hear people say, well, when he says here, count it all joy when bad things happen to you, he doesn't really mean count it all joy when bad things happen to you. Yeah, he actually does. Like that's literally what he's saying. And the question is, how do you do that? Because that's so outside of our box, right? How do you do that? How do you do that when you get the phone call with the bad news that you were dreading? How do you do that when you're in pain in the moment? How do you count it all joy? Well, well, the answer is found in two important phrases in that first verse. The first one is this, count it. And the second one is know that. Count it and know that. And here's what it means. It means that James isn't telling us how to make ourselves feel. He's telling us how to make ourselves think. He's telling us, he's not telling us to feel happy when bad stuff happens. He's saying when bad stuff happens, you need to think properly. See, the key to getting better instead of bitter in the midst of a trial is in how you think. You know, just like Peter reminded these people in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, none of these things that are happening to you, they're not happening to you outside of God's sovereignty. James now reminds us a similar thing. He reminds them that, hey guys, God can use and will use these difficulties even in your life to drive you further into Jesus and also to refine you and make you better like 
gold, right? To make you perfect, lacking in nothing. It doesn't mean that the things that are happening to you are good. It means that even bad things God can use in your life because he's a redeeming God. He can redeem those bad things and use them to make you better like gold, perfect and lacking nothing. Unless you get stretched, unless you get tested, you'll never grow. You'll never get stronger. And here's the thing, God wants you to be strong. You know why? Because he wants to use you to do his work in other people's lives. I mean, let me just level with you, right? Like, you know, right, that Christianity, this Christianity thing isn't just about you. You know that, right? Like, it's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's not just about me, you know, sitting under the spout where the blessings come out, right? It's about me growing and getting to know him and becoming strong, not just for my own sake, but for the sake of others. Because God loves you. He loves me. But guess what? He loves other people who aren't here too. He loves a lot of people, and he wants to use you in other people's lives. And in order for him to do that and do it effectively, he wants to make you strong. He wants you to grow. He wants you to become wise and brilliant and perfect, lacking nothing. You know, some of the wisest people I know, some of the most compassionate people I know, are people who've been through great difficulties and great trials. And they've come through it. They've walked with God through those things. They've come out and they have become better, not bitter. And the key to becoming better, not bitter, in the midst of our trials and hardships is how we think. That's what we learned from these two letters. See, here's the thing. You won't get better if you squirm out of the process. Let me say that again. You won't get better if you squirm out of the process when it gets hard. Notice what James says there in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect. If you squirm out when it gets hard, it will not have its full effect. You know, there are a lot of people who, whenever things get hard, whenever things get scary, whenever, thing, whenever something makes them nervous or makes them uncomfortable, they just jet, right? They, they're like, I'm out of here. I'm gone. They leave relationships, they leave jobs, they leave churches, they leave every situation that gets hard whenever it gets difficult. And you know what happens? Because they're always running away from things, you know what happens is they never grow. They never grow because they never allow those difficult circumstances to have their full effect, and they're always running away. If you do that, you'll never grow. You won't become better. You'll never become refined and brilliant and perfect, lacking nothing. You know, I read something a while back about lions. And you may know some of this stuff if you watch the Nature Channel. Okay, so what you might know about lions is that it's the lionesses who do the lion's share of the work, right? They do a lion's share of the hunting. The females do most of the hunting. Now, the males are the ones with the ferocious roar. Did you know a, lion, a male lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away? So lion, the male lions have this ferocious roar, and they have that cool-looking mane that they have, right? It makes them intimidating, but the fact that the female lions don't have that big mane, that they're smaller in stature, that actually helps them to sneak up on their prey because they can wait in the grass and be motionless and not bring attention to themselves. But what you may not know is that the male lions do actually play a role in the hunting process. It's a small role. It's an important role. But it's not the main role, but it is a role. And here's what happens. The female lions will stalk their prey from behind. They'll try and sneak up behind them, and they'll crouch down in the grass and just wait. 
And in the meantime, while the female lions are waiting there behind the animals, the male lions will circle around and they'll come up in the front and they'll get in the face of the animal where the animal can see them and they'll let out one of their ferocious roars, right? Like roar and, the, and it can be, you know, it's scary. If you were to hear that, like it shakes the ground. If you were to hear that, what would you do? Well, you would do exactly what these animals do. This antelope or whatever it is, hears this roar, sees that scary looking lion, and what do they do? They run in the opposite direction, right into the waiting clutches of the female lion. You see what I'm saying? They run right from the thing that scares them. They, in, they run right into the thing which is actually dangerous. Because see, male lions are more bark than bite in a way, right? Like they're, they're actually not as dangerous as the female lions. And here's the irony. The, the male lion looks scary and sounds scary, but in reality, the safest thing for that gazelle or that antelope to do is, is the opposite of what their brain is telling them to do. What they should do if they want to be safe, they should run towards the roar. But of course they run away from it and they die. In other words, the animal's instincts are wrong. They, they follow their gut. They do what, what feels right in the moment, and it leads to their demise. See, it's completely counterintuitive, but the right choice in that situation would be to override your emotions and actually run towards the thing which is most frightening. And that same principle is true in our lives as well. There are a lot of times when our instincts make us want to run away from our difficulties, from things that are, make us scared or uncomfortable. But see, what, when we run away from those things that scare us or that feel uncomfortable, you're actually moving towards danger, not away from it. And here's what God's Word tells us, is that because God loves you, because God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, you can actually run towards the roar, knowing that you're going to be safe, knowing that God is going to use all things for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And I'll finish just with a few thoughts on this last point, which is this. How do you activate this joy in your life? Right, because we've talked about a lot of really nice theory, a lot of really nice things about this joy. But the question is this, how do you get it? How do you get it in your life so that you can experience it? Check out what he says in verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. How do you activate this joy? Paul tells us two ways. Number one, you love him. And number two, you believe in him. Love him and believe in him. The way to activate this joy in your life to experience it in a dynamic way day to day is to look to Jesus to see who he is and how he has loved you. That's what the Bible tells us, right? That we love him because he first loved us. And so what we need to do is gaze upon him, consider his love for us, consider what he's done for us until the Holy Spirit works in our lives to develop a genuine love for him. So we love him. And secondly, we believe in him. If you've been around here for any period of time, you know that we always define this. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It doesn't just mean to believe in theory that he exists. This biblical idea of believing in Jesus means to trust in him, to rely on him, and to cling to him. That's how you activate this joy in your life. Trusting in him, relying on him, clinging to him, to what he did in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. 
In his life, he fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements on your behalf. In his death, he died as a sacrifice for your sins. And in his resurrection, he paved the way for you to have everlasting life. Look to him, grow in love for him, and believe in him. And as you do these things, you will experience that inexpressible joy that is bigger than any circumstance and which changes the way you think and feel about everything. Amen? Lord, truly, it's our desire to, to not just talk about this joy, but to experience it. Lord, I pray for anyone here today uh, who says, you know, that really resonated with me. I want to experience that joy. I've been on this roller coaster of, of my joy, you know, being totally dependent on my circumstances. Lord, I pray that today we would find our joy in our salvation. And Lord, that we would experience that joy even now by growing in love for you and by believing in you. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We remember it today as we go and as we finish this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 